VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, April the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a call in the queue on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So many of you have an Easter Monday holiday today, and of course, the children in the K-12 system or the students in the K-12 system around their Easter break. So happy Easter to you, or whichever season you may be celebrating. And welcome to the program this morning. Well, maybe not happy Easter to the young fellow going 192 kilometers an hour on Pitts Memorial Drive. I mean, one false move. That car could be airborne in a heartbeat. Imagine, 192 kilometers an hour. Now, I think it's it's worth wondering aloud exactly what the punishment should be for that type of speed. Anyway, those stories drive me around the bend, because especially when I know I have family and friends, and those of you out who I've never met, out sharing the roadway with people willing to go that breakneck speed, unbelievable. All right, it's not only Easter break, but it's uh, the week for provincial championships in minor hockey. We used to refer to them as all in the Philans, but now they're simply the provincials. So safe travels, and good luck to everyone making their way to one corner or another of the province for this memorable tournament. And some perspective, that as much as there is a title on the line, it's still just a game. So maybe bring that thought process to the barn when you go to a game today. And speaking of some hockey stuff, I don't know if many of the players or coaches or family members will be Boston Bruin fans, but holy smokes, what a record they set last night. Most wins in a regular season with 63. That outdoes the 18-19 Tampa Bay Lightning and the 95-96 Detroit Red Wings. So... Better record than the Gretzky Oilers. Better record than the 2000 Detroit Red Wings that had 10 Hall of Famers on the squad. Better than Bobby Orr's early 70s Boston Bruins team. So they've got 131 points in the standings. And just for context, the next closest rival, Carolina, has 109. So pretty amazing stuff. The Bruins look extremely difficult. Uh, Led the league in goals against. Home record, away record. Best penalty kill. They've got six winning streaks of five games or more. And only once have lost two regular regulation time games back-to-back. So, (laughs) unbelievable stuff. And the Growlers. They wrap up the regular season with a couple of impressive wins. They're at the top of their division, the top of the conference. One of the absolute favorites for the Kelly Cup, which would be their second. So, go get them. I just go to Ottawa and wrap up the Men's World Curling Championships. So, Team Kuzu kind of stumbled into the round-robin play. Didn't look like they were on the right side of the inch. And then they start to shoot lights out, you know, beat Sweden back-to-back, beat Switzerland, go to face no, uh, pardon me, uh, Scotland last night in the final, and just didn't have their A game. Lose 9-3, so a silver medal that's back-to-back years with a silver medal, 14 Guzhu. You know, just a couple of costly mistakes. That Bruce Moa team from Scotland, as Mark Nichols said, pretty clinical performance. Moa himself says they probably have never played a better game. Poor timing for us. You know, and I think it comes back to the third end. And Guzhu misses his draw, gives up to steal a two. We're down four, no, four love, and they never look back. But anyway, another wicked year for Team Guzhu and the members of. Okay, so let's talk a little hydro. So I suppose you saw on the news over the weekend that with the ice storm in Quebec last Wednesday, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.1 million customers were without power. They've got it down to some 50 or 60,000 po- without power at this moment in time. So it's been a long process. 
Some reminders coming from the power outage in Quebec. There's 147 people in Montreal alone are being treated for carbon monoxide poisoning. A couple of people have died. And we speak to that because we know we've got ongoing relations with Hydro-Quebec and some negotiations or whatever they look like, discussions. And Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland was in the province last week reassuring Newfoundland and Labrador that we are part of whatever this Atlantic Loop beast may indeed be at some time in the future. Whether or not it ever comes to pass, I have no idea. So some of those issues, people think we were purposefully left out. Others refer to it as a benign omission. But Minister Freeland assures us that this province will be in. So let's talk about Hydro's uh, most recent testing for the Labrador Island Link. So they started off with the calibration tests, and then they went into what is the most important testing, is the high power volume flow. So they've done the 700 megawatt test, the second and final test, and it's been successful. So I suppose whoever at GE Solutions has found that, uh, that particular bug that caused for the system to be tripped the last time they tried it. So I suppose we're on the path now to the final and ultimate commissioning of that five years overdue project and all the problems that come with it. So I guess that's good news, but here comes the right implications associated with that particular project. And it brings me back to, you know, we not only know what happened during the LeBlanc inquiry and some of the dastardly details that we found out because of the testimony and the work done by LeBlanc and his team, and the lawyers representing both sides, and, you know, the whole issue regarding former CEO Ed Martin. And, of course, when whether he was let go or quit and all that, you're fired, I quit kind of scenario that kind of played out in bizarre fashion, one of the most important things and the things that drew the ire of most in this province was the severance package. Walked away with millions of dollars. Now you bring it into Vianne Timmons, the former now president and vice chancellor at Memorial University, and she's out. In a very carefully crafted news release from the Board of Regions, the contract has been terminated and Miss Timmons, Dr. Timmons, is no longer at the helm of the school. So here's one of the quotes. As per the terms of her contract, Dr. Timmons' appointment is being ended on a without-cause basis, and that comes from the chair of the Board of Regents, Glenn Barnes. So Neil Bowes, who's been the spokesperson for the university during the most recent two-week strike, he's a former academic vice president. He's now been appointed the acting president and vice chancellor for a two-year term or until a new president is recruited. So Vianne Timmons comes at the beginning of the pandemic. And the issues have just piled up. I think, obviously, what seems to be the straw that broke the proverbial back was all of the confusion or the controversy surrounding indigenous identity or indigenous heritage. And you can bring that up on the show if you're so inclined today. So it goes back to pulling down posters, what people refer to as the heavy-handed treatment of the vocal opposition to the administration at the university. Then you add in the old to Newfoundland kerfuffle, which I don't know how important that is in the end of the day, but... It was important to enough people to make it an issue. And so now with this most recent Indigenous-related concern. So she was on six weeks of voluntary paid leave, began on the 13th of March, and now this decision is simply not surprising. This was very likely going to be the outcome. And then we talk about the cost to recruit and then the cost for regarding with severance. So there was a long, drawn effort to find a new president for Memorial University, and it came with a $150,000 price tag for that external search. You know, I'm not so sure. Look, there's always going to be the possibility to include the so-called executive headhunter. 
But $150,000 sounds pretty exorbitant to me. And so now her contract was also of note at the beginning. The five-year contract that she signed was a base pay of $450,000, $18,000 a year for a housing allowance, $1,000 a month for a vehicle cost, also a $25,000 yearly research grant for travel perks and all the rest that comes with it. And now that she has been let go, and again, very carefully worded stuff, here's what she's entitled to under the terms of her contract. Severance payment of around $675,000 or 18 months of her base salary, also, seven months of pay out were for accumulated administrative leave. That total is about $270,000. Also, Dr. Timmons is entitled to 18 months' worth of pension accrual benefits and group benefits starting on the date of her termination. The importance of Memorial University in this province is obvious. Some of the reputation has taken a bit of a knock on all. I left out probably the number one thing regarding Dr. Timmons' tumultuous tenure was the doubling of the tuition. Now, some of that can indeed be brought right back to the government. When the amount of money flowing from the province to the university was cut by some $65 million, then there was very little wiggle room left for the university, I would suggest, to see this tuition hike. It's not a great piece of news, obviously not, because access and affordability is going to be key to our long-term viability and economic future here in this province, and I would suggest the status of the healthcare system and the health of the residents or the citizens of the province. So, what do we do here? You know, what is the right number to pay a university president? You know, what types of terms will be settled on in contracts, especially regarding potential severance? At the executive level, whether you're working in the private sector, at the helm of a university, the CEO of a utility or a crown corporation, those executive contracts will absolutely always include some of these protections for the individual. What is in there for the protection of the government and the taxpayers? Because that is a pretty healthy golden parachute, I would suggest. So what should be the base pay? If it's not $450,000, what do you think it should be? And how should a search for a president be conducted? Does it need to be nationwide, globally? Is there not someone at the university who has put in their time and showed their stripes, has been industrious and effective and productive, and has the vision for Memorial University in the future? I don't know, but... You're getting a lot of reaction to it, and so there's a variety of angles or tangents that we can take on on that front if you are so inclined. Sticking with schooling, this is also a little bit of a strange way for the news to have reported this, and it's regarding the most recent decision by the Human Rights Commission uh, surrounding Carter Churchill and the lack of an appropriately trained uh, ASL teacher. The poor boy sat in silence for all those years at Beachy Cove Elementary. So, of course, there was apologies offered. $150,000 for discrimination will be paid to the Churchill family who fought the good fight for years. I don't even know how many families would have had the stick to to do what the Churchills did, but good on them for doing it. So the school district now, which is going to be just the Department of Education in the very near future, says that they accept the findings. Well, I suppose you do accept the findings. They were really quite clear. There was all the evidence required for this determination to come from the Human Rights Commission. But the ultimate question would be, what do we do from here? You know, how do we ensure that there are no uh, more similar Carter Churchill stories? And it's not just about a child who's profoundly deaf and nonverbal and is way behind in his learning and usage of American Sign Language, but it's all the children and students who have exceptionalities that require additional supports or additional challenge. So it's fine to tell me you accept it, but apparently we're not nowhere near the right track even for ASL confirmed, qualified, 
teachers. So, great, except pay the fine or whatever we want to refer to as that $150,000 price tag. But what specific steps have been taken since we've understood the Carter Churchill story and other similar stories throughout the gamut of K-12? So that would be my question. It's fine, and I think it's appropriate and it's required for Terry Hall to have made this statement. And, you know, here's what he also goes on to say. He doesn't blame any individual. Okay, but there, us, there does have to be some semblance of blame, and there has to be some air of accountability. Does that mean heads roll, jobs are lost? I don't know. But the next steps for how do we ensure that this is never a story that we have to broach again and never has to make its way to a Human Rights Commission, those are the big questions for me. And one more on the early childhood. I don't know if you read the telegram over the weekend, but some of the early childhood educators, daycare operators, they have questions. You know, whether it be the lag time between getting the wage subsidy money in hand so they can pay their staff, there are still big questions about it. It's fine for $10 a day if you can find a space. So we've seen the early, pay, the early childhood educator pay grid. Hopefully that will fill the positions required to expand the spaces to the hope for over the course of five years, some 6,000 additional spaces. So we're happy to take that on as well. One second, I'll get a sip of coffee. We're back. Okay, so last week or the week before, we've heard a couple of stories in healthcare with the expanded scope of practice. I think the pharmacists are really quite pleased with the moves that have been made by the legislature to allow them to do more of what they're trained to do. But inside the world of registered nurses, so it just all sounds good. For ease in the overwhelmed system, for nurses to be able to do more, all sounds like a great idea. Whether it be prescribe uh, a prescription or a diagnostic test, or make a referral to a specialist, all those things. But the registered nurses' union, they have major questions, and they are going to have a meeting, I suppose, with the College of Registered Nurses, because the college says, this is a good thing. And the registered nurses' union say, it might be, but here's the ones we have to figure out. Are they going to get paid more for doing more work? How does this add to their workload for an already pretty burnt-out group of registered nurses? How about the training? So if a nurse practitioner or a doctor has to oversee the training, which will take about a year, and three different modules, so they can uh, write prescriptions, how does that work? Does it mean in their off time? Does it mean during their normal course of work uh, on the floor? So I think they're pretty fair questions that they have. So they don't seem to be quite as bullish because we have to factor in how the registered nurses feel about this expanded scope of practice. Yes, for me and you, who would be interacting with the healthcare system, it very likely will make things better or more efficient. But that doesn't mean that it's going over well with a bunch of registered nurses, including those who took the time to write me emails about this saying, look, I'm not even sure I want to take that on. And then you add into the story, and this is really quite something, about the amount of money that the, reg the, pardon me, the regional health authorities have been paying for private agency nurses. The numbers are huge. Paid about $100 million per year to these private agency nurses or the, in the past year. Paul Dinn says the figures are astounding, and he's absolutely right. So through access to information, they know that there's some eight contracts in place in Central and Western that adds up to that price tag. But here's what we really don't know much more about. And of course, if I'm a registered nurse on the floor, someone who's working alongside of me is making more than me because they're working for a private agency, I'm not too thrilled with that. So we can go down through the eight contracts, but here's the one that I'm not even sure I've got a full grip on. There's an Eastern Health contract that we don't know much about. 
But apparently, the total works out to $266,000 plus per day, every day, spent on travel nurses since April of 2022. That is a massive amount of money. So I don't know if we can eliminate private nurses from the system because surely they're playing some sort of proactive, positive role. Of course they are. But it's probably just making things worse for the registered nurse. So if you're an RN and you're being recruited to work with one of these agencies and you might have to work less and make more, that sounds like a really attractive option. So maybe, just maybe, and I said this last week, and one of the nurses working for a private agency sent me a really sour email, and I understood. But if you're working in the public system, then your contract should be very much like mine. If I quit, I can't just go work for another media outlet if they were silly enough to take me. So same thing for a non-compete, for a registered RN, or pardon me, for an RN working in the public system. You can't just quit and automatically go to work for another agency just because they're going to pay you more. I get it. If someone offered me more money to do less, well, I'm going to give it some very serious consideration. But I don't think overall it's helping the, uh, the system as a whole. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right, let's go to the water. So the price has been set for snow crab for this year at $2.20 per pound. That is a pretty low price when you compare to the early season offering last year. It's about five bucks less. So we all know the process here when it goes to the price setting panel. The uh, Association for Seafood Producers will put in a price and then the FFAW will be the same. The ASP asked for $3.10. Uh, pardon me, the uh, union asked for $3.10. $2.20 came from the ASP and they landed on the ASP number. So there's a Bunch of harvesters at this moment in time say they're not going. They're not going fishing for crab. There's no money in it. Now I don't know what the break-even number would be, or the profitability number would be. I have no earthly idea. But I suppose not all of the harvesters are created equal with the same amount of crew and operating costs and the uh, individual quota that they would have to fish for snow crab. So the stock looks like it's in good shape, but that price is not well received for anyone who's on the water doing the catching of the crab but if you want to take it on we can do it and i think they do make one important uh, point here it's not just simply about the price per pound for locally harvested crab it's the importation of crab as well from other jurisdictions that's good for the processor maybe not great for the local harvesters but anyway if you want to talk about the 3l kerfuffle or the price per pound or anything else inside of that industry let's do exactly that and for the folks in galtas now it's the waiting game all the votes have been submitted, if people were going to vote, to see whether or not the residents to meet the 75% threshold to relocate. Big conversation, emotional conversation, and will set the table for other communities who inevitably will entertain this community discussion and community-led discussion. But without question, if it's five or seven who have left between April of last year and this year, so the leave vote already has a head start. Right, because they're going to vote to get the money. But if you want to take it on, let's go. And for golfers in the area, the land swap between Ballyhaley Country Club and Clovelly is done. So reduce the number of golf courses on the Avalon from 7 to 6. And that's probably good for the industry to make it a bit more viable and profitable. Lots of concerns about what becomes of the Ballyhaley Country Club uh, plot of land. Extremely prime real estate. So off go the Ballyhaley members up to Clovelly. It'll be rebranded. The two courses will be Ballyhaley North and Ballyhaley South. So probably good for the members. Apparently they've got a real uptick in people applying to be members. But over 100 years of operations there off Logie Bay Road and 
looks like they're going to just close down that clubhouse, tear it down, and move on. Now, the Dobbins, of course, real estate developers with other business interests. So you got to believe that's going to become some sort of gated community. Not that we needed a bunch of new million-dollar houses as opposed to a bunch of new $300,000 houses, affordable middle-class bungalows, for instance, but I'm not so sure we'll see much of that. Anyway, you want to talk about it, let's go. And it's National Siblings Day. So if you haven't spoken to one of your siblings for whatever reason for a little while, maybe today's a great day to give them a shout. So happy National Siblings Day to mine. Andrea, Jennifer, Michael, and Lisa, hope you're having a great day. We had a great brunch at Lisa's yesterday, ate too much, but that's standard operations. We're on Twitter, we're VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My fave is when you call, do it during the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Michael Boyle. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Uh, a lot of news on the go this morning, isn't there? Plenty, no shortage. Yeah, uh, I, I want to give you more good news. Uh, uh, today in Newfoundland, um, Prickly and St. John's, we're, we'll be uh, celebrating a couple of events. Uh, one is called the Good Friday Agreement, uh, Peace uh, tr- uh, sort of Agreement in Northern Ireland, uh, and also the 107th uh, anniversary of of, uh, the foundation of the Irish Republic. And uh, just a quick word on the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, we're all probably aware of all the troubles and the 30 years of violence and the murders, the shootings and all that kind of stuff that went on. Uh, 25 years ago, the, was, there was a, a, a kind of a, a peace agreement. And it still has, uh, it has been shaky, but it's still been there. You're probably aware of that, Paddy. I am, yeah. It was signed in 1998, if I remember correctly. And it saw a reduction in some of the violence that plagued throughout the time era known as the Troubles. So it, it was certainly a step in the right direction, but that Belfast Agreement, that's how I always remember it, is the Belfast Agreement as opposed to the Good Friday Agreement. It is a hopeful step, but it hasn't been the be-all and end-all necessarily. It hasn't. Uh, and, you know, people here say, well, why do you talk about that? I mean, one of the things is the power sharing. And, you know, in Newfoundland, you know, scratch back a couple of generations, you know, if, uh, if you're working down or looking for a job uh, down in Water Street, uh, you had to be the right, uh, you know, you had to be the, 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 uh, the right religion and so forth, or went to the right school. I'm, I'm sure people might remember that in Newfoundland. Well, absolutely. Well, certainly inside the stories told by my family, you know, that distinction with country of origin or religious, uh, your religious affiliations was the be all and end all. So I'm even old enough to have gone to school in the Catholic school uh, d- denominational system. So it was Saturday afternoon. It was the mix against the Protestants up at Brother O'Hare Arena. So it was real as, as recently as my youth. Yeah. I, I think we're, we're trying to move on. Again, this sure. is not easy, not to not to distinguish it uh, or make it uh, uh, sound easy. The whole idea of forgetting and forgiving, and that, that's going to take time. And, and uh, you know, if, if you were murdered by the IRA or, or murdered by the British Army, uh, you, you're going to, your family uh, relatives are going to find that really difficult, you know, in terms of legacy. It's not just drawing a line. I think the British government wants to draw a line in the sand and say, well, let's forget about everything and we'll move on. It's not that easy. No, not to it through. Uh, throughout Easter week, of course, you harken back to April of 1916 and the Easter Rising or the Easter Rebellion, however people refer to it. Sure. So the belligerents, which included, you know, the uh, the volunteers, the Irish volunteers, the uh, the citizens' army, and of course, all about British rule in Ireland. So there was a lot of death and conflict associated with the Easter Rising as well. Yeah, you're you're up to speed. Gosh, I don't have to say, say anything. Uh, uh, what I want to mention to you, Patty, is today at Colonial Building, uh, um, we're probably the only place. In 
in maybe uh, in North America, the only place in uh, certainly in Canada that has will be will be celebrating the good news of the Good Friday Agreement uh, at Colonial Building at 12 o'clock. And we'll also be celebrating, uh, making reference to the Easter, the Easter uh, Rising, 107th uh, anniversary of um, the foundation of the Irish Republic. And thirdly, and I think most important of all, uh, you know, the people who've died, people who've died in the conflict, whether are there, uh, whether they are um, have been uh, part of the, the loyalists, the IRA, British Army, police, all the people, uh, you know, in the uh, back in 1916, and of course 1916, the Newfoundland Regiment. So we'll, we'll, uh, we will have uh, one of the people today who's going to make a special tribute uh, uh, and remembrance to all the people who've died. You know, remember them on all sides. I think that makes it, you know. Newfoundland. Sometimes when we have war memorials and all that kind of stuff, we have all kinds of parades. But, you know, we've got to remember everything and then try and move on. You know, this is not a celebration of war by, by any means. No, of course not. And I hope that my comments don't make it feel or sound like that. I mean, even the casualties on both sides, I can't remember the exact numbers, but on the belligerent side for the Irish crowds, there was maybe some 80, I think, deaths. Some of those were executions. The British, which really overwhelmed them in numbers, maybe some 50 thousand British forces and some in the neighborhood of 2,500 or something uh, on the Irish side, citizens, army, volunteers, or otherwise. So yes, the losses were, were profound on both sides. Yeah, and uh, and the, the 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 during the the Northern Ireland situation, we had, we had you know almost 300, you know 3,500 people die, mm-hmm. uh, and you know it would be and it's important to remember all of these people uh, and some of them would you know a good number of them I wouldn't say a good number, a certain number of them, die, you know this idea of friendly fire. Or, or being at the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, you know, their families still mourn. And I, I think um, we, we'll remember them today. Uh, and this is probably the only event uh, in Canada uh, is the, uh, we're, you know, a lot of Irish people like to dress up in green and uh, play the fiddle music down on George Street. But uh, when there's anything to do with politics, heritage and culture, uh, they're, they're nowhere to be seen, you know. That no, that, that's for sure. So who's going to harken back and play the role of Patrick Pierce today? <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I'm not sure how many people will be there. It'll be a small, small group of people, uh, type of thing like that. And, any, and by the way, anyone's invited at, at at 12 o'clock today at Colonial Building. Appreciate the time as usual, okay. Michael. Thank you very much. Ken. Thank Take you, care. sir. Okay. Bye bye. Yeah, the uh, Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement. And yes, Easter week of 16 was, of course, the Easter Rising, and you know the story surrounding the troubles. Let's take a break on time this morning. Appreciate the patience, both Terry uh, and Colin. They're both there to talk about different subjects. What? You'll find out. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, Patty, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, do you know who establishes or sets the... uh, speed limits for different types of highways in Newfoundland, like the like Trans-Canada Highway, the major trunk roads, the, the feeder roads. That, would that be the Department of Transportation? Who makes the final determination? That's a good question, Terry. I'm not entirely sure. I think some of it is gauged by the Highway Traffic Act that would establish whether it be school zones at 30, highways at 100. But I don't know who has the final say province to province, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, so I'm wondering because uh, I got just a personal beef. Uh, 
like the Bay, I live on the Beaver Peninsula, and of course the the trunk road going down the Beaver Peninsula is uh, similar to the trunk road that goes down the Beaver Peninsula and the Northern Northern Peninsula, and so on. And uh, <clears throat> the speed limit on the Northern Peninsula trunk road and the uh, Beaver Peninsula trunk road is 90 kilometers per hour, but on the Beaver Peninsula highway it's only 80. And uh, I just just wondering who I would contact uh, to, to see the outcome and who sets those speed limits, right? Well, I, I'm sure I could find out pretty quickly, but I would imagine some consideration is also given to the safe uh, or the lack thereof safety measures and or blind spots and or the narrow of the road, what have you, because, I mean, we've saw adjustments being made, whether it be adding passing lanes or adjusting speed limits on, for instance, Peacekeeper's Way comes to mind. So I suppose some of it has to do with safety, Terry. What do you think? Yes, I, I would say so, you know, but regarding safety, as in uh, as in visibility and uh, how many turns and crooks is in the road, the Beaver Peninsula Highway is uh, every bit as good as the Beaver Peninsula and the Northern Peninsula Highway. We've got a it's it's great highway in some that sense. Now we got horrible pavement, uh, but I mean we didn't always have horrible pavement when the when that season was established. We had good pavement years ago. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I'm I, I just wondering, right, because, I mean, the, we had a highway that to drive down, the, even even with our bumpy pavement, uh, to drive down that highway at 80 kilometers an hour, you need some patience. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and I was down to Buren Peninsula Highway uh, a while ago, and, I mean, it's all 90 going down there. Plus, they got oodles of passing lanes, too. They got a super highway on that Buren Peninsula. Now, for me saying super now it's kind of relative because we got the worst highways in the province on the Beaver Peninsula so we get impressed by highways very easily when we go off the Beaver Peninsula but the, uh, and the Northern Peninsula I mean is, uh, is uh, now they don't have many passing lanes they got one going up over Southeast Hills and so they should but uh, I, I just wonder why we're down to 80 kilometers an hour I mean if we had if we had a, a sticky bunch of RCMP officers on the peninsula, they'd have a heyday on the Bay of Peninsula with speeding tickets because almost no one got the patience to drive 80 kilometers an hour on that trunk highway. And, and other peninsulas in the province, their speed limit is 90, and I'm just wondering why. I'll see what I can figure out and find out on that front, whether it be how the decisions are made, who ultimately makes them, but I hadn't really thought about it. I thought it would all be fairly natural stuff across the country. Uh, but, you know, I was just in Quebec and Ontario, and not only do they post maximum speed, but they also post minimum speeds in places, which I hadn't seen uh, in the recent past, which is also uh, curious. Terry, before I let you go, uh, so are you going at the crab for 220 pounds? Um... <coughs> Well, I, I don't think anybody is going at it yet, Patty. And uh, I mean, we're uh, in fact, my boat is not even home yet. It's in St. John's. In fact, that's where I'm on the way to now. So we, we just got back from up at the Redfish, uh, up on uh, off the South Coast, right? and uh, but I mean, our season down in 3K is not open yet anyway. Although it will open on uh, Friday coming, where you could sail, I think, as early as the 11th. But uh, but I don't know if we're going to get fishing even if the price was higher because we got a nice bit of sea ice in that around too, off and near our fishing grounds and in along shore. So it's not a big pressing issue in 3K, not yet. But uh, when the time comes to go at it uh, for 220 a pound, uh, I, I don't know. Let's see what everyone is going to do, I guess. But right now, I mean, the, the vast majority of fishermen are saying that 
at this time, they're not going to go fishing for two twenty a pound. That's certainly the predominant sentiment in my email. I can tell you that much this morning. Uh, Terry, I'll find out about speed limit-related questions, and I appreciate the time. Safe travels. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Best kind. How you doing? Doing pretty good. I want to talk about the recent uh, number of cases of impaired driving causing death that are going through the courts in this province. Um, some of these, uh, some of the, some of the, uh, you know, the facts of these cases are, are particularly not only tragic, obviously, but a lot of these offenders that, you know, people who have been found guilty or have pleaded guilty and are going through the court system now to a, to a sentencing process. Some of these, um, some of the facts that are coming out on sentencing in these cases are just really quite appalling and brazen, I think. Um, you, you have uh, in, in one one case uh, that's going through the courts now, a man uh, was convic- convicted of impaired driving causing death of his girlfriend who was a passenger in the vehicle. He lost control of the vehicle after leaving a bar uh, drunk. Um, the, his passenger was thrown from the vehicle and, and died at the scene. And he had been, this has come out at sentencing, that he had been uh, on previous court orders uh, not to consume alcohol, among other uh, conditions, you know? So are we seeing more of these or just the circumstances in this particular case? Uh, I'm not sure, really. If it's, if it's there's more cases going through the courts, uh, I've noticed two or three now in the last couple of months. Uh, I don't know if that means that there's an increase in, in uh, the impaired driving causing death cases that are going through, or if this is just a cluster. But uh, in any event, um, one fatality from impaired driving is one too many. And you would think that people would just uh, be getting the message that uh, being impaired by alcohol or drugs and, and having care and control of a motor vehicle is... Uh, you just can't do that. That's not only a, obviously a criminal offense, but uh, the courts frowned upon that, and society frowns upon that uh, severely, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, I, the last data I saw when you talk about province to province, territory to territory, were way out in front. It's far too prevalent and common in this province. You know, I think when some people point out that you know. It's just a matter of time before people who are at it all the time get caught, and some of that might be directly related to you know straight up alcoholism and the inability to make sound decisions. And we see it and we hear these stories all the time. Then you get the folks who've been repeat offenders. I remember a story a number of years ago now where I think the fellow had been picked up for his tenth time, and he was quite ill, and they were fighting about any prison sentence that would be afforded to him. But it's just way, way too common around here. Yeah, uh, just looking at one case now. Uh on the computer here that actually was reported by VOCM and a man is going through uh, a sentencing hearing now. He's 30 years old for driving his uh, Ford Ranger into a ditch on the Torbay Bypass Road in uh, 2021 and uh, he killed his girlfriend. Um, He had a half dozen beers and several drinks. Uh, One woman tried to stop the the victim from getting in the vehicle before the uh, the accused and the victim uh, left the parking lot, and uh, you know, at the at the at the scene, 
the, the accused told the police that he shouldn't have been driving, but that's not why the crash happened. You know, he shouldn't have been driving because he was on court orders not not to, you know, not to uh, uh, be under the influence of alcohol and, and not to be driving a vehicle and things like that. But uh, he's just denying that <laughs> the reason the crash happened was because he was impaired. But yet he's found guilty now. So he's 30 years old. He was under court orders before not to consume alcohol. And uh, he's gone, he, had to, he has to be sentenced now by the sentencing judge. He's been found guilty. And uh, so what is the fit sentence for him, given his age and other you know, uh, circumstances, of his, his personal circumstances, his age, and whether he has a criminal record or a lack of criminal record, and all the other things that go into sentencing, deterrence and a fit sentence, and uh, one that... Uh, you know, bring, doesn't bring the uh, justice system into dispute and things like that. So what is the fit sentence for him? I really don't know, but I I just very quickly uh, recalled that I know a family that uh, had a tragedy because of a street racing incident, and the sentence uh, seemed extremely light to me. I think it was less than two years for those involved that caused the accident that saw this young girl named Hannah be killed. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what an appropriate sentence would be, but certainly more than what those two fellows got. And one of them, got, I think one of them only spent somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, six months or less in jail. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, impaired driving causing death. Um, Newfoundland uh, has a very high rate of of of, uh, of that offense, and not only it's causing death, but impaired driving and, and uh, uh, impaired driving causing bodily harm. And for a population of 525,000 people, they have very high rates of of, uh, of uh, impaired uh, driving related offenses. And I think, uh, despite uh, Publicity campaigns by the police and and uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and other other uh, organizations. Uh, this continues to be a very serious problem, and uh, I don't know really what has to be done in order to get the message across to people that you just can't have care and control of a motor vehicle. Well, they know better. They just choose to uh, ignore it and do it anyway. And just on the speed, the street racing business as well, I didn't really know this was a thing because I don't, I'm not a street racer. Um, but one of my sons has a car that I think many people would see as a, a, a quick car. And hopefully he drives the same way with me that he does when I'm not there. And I think he does. But we were coming back from a hockey game in Paradise one day last weekend. And twice, just on the stretch between when we left the rink and got to the intersection and got back on the highway, twice, a car would pull up and do the little stunting in the other lane to, to try to encourage a little bit of a race off to the next traffic light or something. And I said, what's that guy doing? He says he's looking for a race. And I'm like, what? This is in the middle of paradise on a four-lane road blocked with traffic, nowhere to go. And that was the behavior of two cars within the span of 45 seconds that did exactly that. I said, Nick, you don't take them up. And I said, no, idiot, right? In the middle of paradise here. What are you talking about? But, you know, it's those two things. And then I add to the story that got the headlines this morning on VOCM.com. Someone pulled over yesterday going 192 kilometers an hour on Pitts Memorial Drive. We all know these things are stupid. We all know that they're illegal but people sometimes just ignore it whether through ignorance or they couldn't care less or they have no uh, understanding of the risk that they're putting themselves in and for the rest of the motoring public so those stories in combination are frustrating and of course we all have family and friends that are out on the roads day in and day out and shouldn't be subjected to that kind of behavior uh last comment for you colin before we say goodbye you know i i i am reticent to say that i think mandatory minimum sentences 
should be brought in for uh, impure driving related offences. I know the uh, the federal government in 2018 increased the maximum sentence for impure driving from five years to 10 years, uh, where that offence is prosecuted by indictment. But uh, impure driving causing death, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm starting to uh, change my my view my legal view on on the, the minimum sentencing guidelines for that. I think. Uh, Parliament has to start putting in some statutory minimums and, and create a, a statute that will survive a charter challenge, I think. Appreciate the time this morning, Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Happy Easter. You, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, Lisa wants to talk about delays and military death benefits. And then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. How about you? Oh, not bad. Well, uh, I think you will know me as soon as I tell you a little bit about the background. Um, my brother served 28 years in the military, and he retired September 2014 with PTSD and severe depression. And he died in his house January the 9th, I think, of 2015. And I found his body May of 2015. I do know the story. As sad as it is. Like I told you before, like, um, it's been eight years and, uh, in May and, um, I want, the government has made me relive my life of this tragic death and not just losing my brother, but losing my whole entire living family because my brother left me everything, which I wish he would have never left me a thing. And um, they're making me relive it year after year, month after month, sometimes day after day. How so? Like, what's happening? Um, well, I had his military pension. I mean, his, um, his funeral was over $10,000. Um, then uh, my brothers would not be the executives of the, the will that it was listed. So then the lawyer found an opportunity. So it took him 10 months to get it to court to prove that the will was legal and the family couldn't fight it. And so the, as soon as they took over the public of trustee, um, military pension was supposed to be sent to the estate. And um, I guess the public of trustee didn't really realize, they didn't see that Underneath that payment, it said supplementary death benefit. And so um, four years later, I was going through my brother's papers, um, and I said supplementary death benefit. What does that mean? And so I called, um, and they said, oh, we owe you the, the estate, the military pension. And I'm like, no. And they told me I had to fill out an application to prove who I was to get the supplementary death benefit. And I said, well, I went back and I looked in the estate papers and in the payment, right underneath it, it said supplementary death benefit. They sent the estate, the the supplementary death benefit, without an application proving who they were and if this was my brother's estate. And um, so then they said they owed me the military pension, which the estate was closed three years prior. And so they sent me, they took their 30% taxes, the government. They sent me a check of $120,000 with my brother's name on it, told me to go to the bank and cash it. I said, if I went to the bank and cashed that 
uh, I think I would end up in jail. And uh, so I had to resend it back. Uh, they had to open the estate. And she said the public of trustee took their 5% of 123000 And she did the taxes. And she found out after she did the taxes that where this money was over four years late, the CRA took 90-something thousand dollars. And so three and a half years later of her trying to find the best way possible for uh, the money to go where it belonged to me, um, CRA took over three and a half years. Uh, so their advice was to for her to get a refund. And as soon as she got the refund, she would send me the money, and then I had to claim it. Okay, just a couple of questions. So I don't really know a whole lot about this, unfortunately, Lisa, but (coughs) one second. So if the service member is married, then that person is the beneficiary. If not, then they can designate next of kin to be the beneficiary. So if you get paid directly as the designated next of kin or the designated beneficiary, that money's not taxable as far as I knew. But if money is paid to an estate, then there may indeed be tax applied. So is that something that you're trying to look for to to see rectified? Yeah, because they made so many mistakes, and I don't know the laws. Um, I don't have a clue. Like, I was a sole beneficiary um, on the will, um, but then... When, on his military pension, every year when he signed the papers after my mom passed away, um, he put my name. And the day he retired, he put estate because I was the estate. And I said to the guys, um, Mark Waho, who works for the, the government, he, he, I'm, not, I'm really flagged in there, and he's the only one who can speak to me. And then I told them about the pro- uh, what they did, like the process of, I told you, why couldn't you just directly send me this money? It was already 30% taxed because it was, uh, like his military pension was almost 200000 And uh, so what I was left with was 123, but I would have to claim it, which made no sense. And uh, he said, no, it's got to be, sent to the estate and he's like well and then I told him about this mistake that happened that uh, they were taking 90 something thousand and uh, now they're waiting for a refund then I have to claim it and he he said to me a professional of the highest one into the pension he said you're going to get your money what you were what you were supposed to get Uh, so what what is your problem I said my problem is if you didn't make the mistakes in the first place, almost eight years later, I, my children lost me. I was depressed. I went into a depression uh, for three, four years. Um, I couldn't work. I was like in a state. But what my whole point behind this was, so when I got the money back last year, April the 25th, um, I said to the, I had to go out 
and apply for uh, voluntary disclosement. And I thought that when they did the voluntary disclosement, that they meant that it meant that they were going to claim this money that I owed them, um, and it would be okay. This is what I owe them. So when it comes to the facts, um, um, I get to T three come this the, this year, and I'm like, what? I got to claim this now. I thought this was already done. Why did I send the pension? I mean, the the CRA uh, $62,000 because last year um, I was uh, working with uh, TLC in December, not December, December 4th. I lost my job because of stupidity of uh, a coworker and uh, bringing up COVID and had the family feared, but she just did not want me working with her. So I'm a single mom. Um, my daughter's 26 and living on her own, but I have a 14-year-old son. I had no job, five cracked ribs from December until I went back to work in October. Um, but last year during this time, uh, when when I got the money from, uh, I was owed a $2,000 income tax. Okay, and just before we run out of time, because it is just about time to get to the news. So who are you dealing with to try to bring this to some sort of realistic resolution? Right oh. now, CRA. Okay, that's always difficult. And okay. I sent them $59,000 last uh, April the 25th. And uh, so I'm thinking it was paid on a debt that I owed, which I didn't even know how much I owed. So they took $62,000 and me okay. with no job. So then uh, I uh, found out that this money was just sitting in CRA, not being allocated anywhere. So I did my taxes. I owe the government $23,000. They took $62,000 for me. Right, I heard that part, yep. They owe me money. And they're saying it's a process. I said, well, I never had a process. You made me pay $62,000 when I didn't even owe it to you. Well, there's ways to appeal tax rulings as well, which I assume is where you're headed. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to get one quick one in before the news, but uh, keep me in the loop. Let me know what happens here. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, Lisa. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm going to get Bill before we get to the break. Uh, Line number four, Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Best kind, Mr. Tizard. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good, sir, and thank you very much for taking my call, and thank you for BOCM for being there for us to promote our... uh, it's uh, things that we have on the go. No problem at all. Guess what time of the year it is, Petty? Flippers. It's flipper time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. When you, when's the dinner? Uh, Petty, uh, Royal Canadian Leeds Branch 1 on uh, Black Marsh Road. We're having a dinner slash roast beef dinner on uh, April the 24th. Eat in as starts at 4 o'clock. Take out. Uh, oh, wait, no, I get that wrong. Take out starts at 4 o'clock. Eat in starts at 6. Tickets are $25 each. To get your ticket, you can call 579-8281 or drop by the Legion any day from 12 noon to midnight. And you better get out of quick because when Bill and I speak, it generally goes pretty quick. People make their orders. Petty, uh, it's unbelievable. When I get on the phone with Joe, the phone's at the Legion, light up, light up like the Christmas tree. So I'm glad to hear it, too. So it's 579-8281. That's the number, right, Bill? 
Right on. Okay, and make that call today. April the 24th, and it's $25 a dinner. Excellent stuff. Good luck with it, Bill. If you need another plug soon, let's do it. Thank you, Petty. I really appreciate what you do for us. My pleasure, Bill. Stay in touch. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too, Bill. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. Flipper dinner or a roast beef dinner. 579-8281, April the 24th. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the pending harder championships that are upcoming between the Southern Shore Breakers and the Deer Lake Red Wings. Gary Gale is the chair of senior hockey for Hockey NL. He's next. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the chair of senior hockey for Hockey NL. That's Gary Gale. Good morning, Gary. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm a bit more familiar with what goes on here on this side of the autumn regarding senior hockey in the Avalon East. What's it been like out on the West Coast? I know it's great to have the West Coast senior hockey circuit back in action, but how's the season gone? Well, first of all, I guess, yes, as you indicated, it's uh, great uh, to be back uh, uh, and competing for the order once again. But I guess in terms of uh, the season for the West, uh, we had a great uh, season, Patty. I guess after COVID, everybody was pretty anxious to get hockey back. We worked, uh, God, I suppose, for a year and a half to bring it back. And uh, first game in Cornerbrook, uh, we had a capacity crowd. We had to turn people away. We had 3,800 fans in the building. And generally, overall, in the smaller venues, capacity around about 1,200. You know, we're running around about the 1,000 range. So, you know, we've had great hockey and great fan support. You know, there's always been the hope to have the Herder competed for on the province-wide level. So we had the Central League going for a while. Now the West is thankfully back. But, of course, for Hockey NL and for both of the teams and both of the leagues, you want it to be as competitive as possible. So with the more established league and the access to more and more players on this side of the province, what's, the, what's Hockey NL doing to make this as competitive as, a, as it can be? Well, as you know, a few years back, Patty, I believe you were involved a bit at the time. Uh, 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 the Avalon East was a B league, and, of course, uh, uh, we had a very strong central league at the time. So what we did is we allowed uh, – well, we wanted to have, a, you know, a provincial competition. So we we allowed the East to pick up uh, a number of strengthening players. And, of course, we, we recognize the East is stronger. And, of course, you know, you have six great teams out that way. And, of course, all teams have junior affiliates. So what we've done in, in, in the West, uh, we've allowed, allowed the West the same to pick up so many strengthening players to bring the compete level up. And it opens up, I believe, out West, does Gary? I beg your pardon? The series opens up out in Deer Lake? Yes, it does. Uh, it'll go Friday and Saturday, 14th uh, uh, and 15th at the Otter Memorial Stadium in Deer Lake. I mean, it's really a, a, an awesome championship that has a real ex- historic presence here in this province. Do we do enough, Gary, to you know celebrate it as much as we used to? And this is not a criticism of Hockey NL or you or anybody else, because I think we all want to have the prestige associated with the herder that maybe was more so in years past. So how do we all collectively work towards making that as an, as an important championship, as it always has been here in the province, but maybe kind of falling off the radar a little bit? What do you think? Well, you know, it is the marquee championship, uh, obviously, as, as you know, in, in the province. So when, when I guess... Uh, 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 we uh, we ran into COVID, I guess, way back in 2020, and everything pretty well shut down. What we did, uh, we formed an order committee uh, uh, with members from the east and the west, and we uh, we we put uh, uh, 
two years of planning into trying to bring the order back, uh, I, I guess, to the level that it was many years ago, and we developed what we call a road to the order plan. And, of course, what's happening right now this coming weekend is all, all a part of the plan. Well, as you know, last year we did we did uh, get back to the order, but in our plan as well, basically uh, uh, what we agreed on, if there's only one uh, league in the province, they would compete for the order. Now, what, what, now, now uh, in, in this case, we have two leagues, so obviously the top two teams will compete. But no question, I mean, you know, we've focused a lot on marketing and promotion as well. And, uh, you know, we're hoping, uh, you, you, you know, uh, uh, and based on all of the calls, I mean, the phone has, hasn't stopped really since Friday uh, uh, after the Wings won. You know, we're, we're, we think we're heading for, you know, a great showdown between the East and the West there. Well, I wish all the teams safe travels and the very best of luck. Gary, anybody kicking the Allen Cup tires these days? Uh, yes, uh, Clarenville uh, decided. Uh, well, one team dropped out. Uh, it's not. Uh, it, 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 it's it, it's it's called. They're trying to bring the Allen Cup back. I guess uh, 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 you know uh, uh, again because of the shutdown. And of course, I suppose it's uh, similar to what's going on in terms of the order. So what they're doing this year, they're having what's called an Allen Cup challenge so they will not pre- officially present the Allen Cup as such but uh, Clarenville is going up with uh, with uh, pickups uh, I believe on Saturday coming to compete compete for the Allen Cup. That's terrific I mean we've got uh, celebrated history in this province with the Allen Cup too whether it be the Cornbrook Royals back in 86 Clarenville and Grand Falls Windsor and the Cataracts so good luck yep. to the Caribou as they make their way up up along for a kick at the Allen Cup of very prestigious, and I think the oldest trophy competed for in hockey in the world, maybe not in the world, but certainly in Canada, I believe. Yes, it's the oldest amateur hockey uh, competition, I believe, in the world. You're, you're correct, yeah. Good to have you on, Gary. Good luck. Thank you, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. That's Gary Gale. He's the senior hockey chair at Hockey NL. Okay, let's go to line number two. Jenny, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Uh, I'm okay, Jenny. How about you this morning? Um, <laughs> I've been better. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, calling in today to talk about um, the safety of my son and how CSSD is making it impossible for me to keep him safe. Um, I actually find this really difficult to talk about. Okay, um, and just so people know, the yeah. CSSD, that's the Children, Seniors, and Social Development Department at the government. Right. Yeah, so okay. A lot of people probably still know it by the old name of CYFS, right, Child, Youth, and Family Services. Right. Um, but it did get lumped in with seniors a few years ago. Um, yeah, so I do I do find this a bit hard to talk about, but uh, nothing is more important to me than the safety of my son. Um, I'm suffering with a bit of a cold here today too, so bear with me. <laughs> um, I have been dealing with this on and off for seven years now. I've never spoken out before publicly. Um, I've been trying to follow the correct channels by contacting CSSD, making sure my son has counseling, following the steps in family court, um, reporting things to the RNC, and it's been a very long and a very frustrating road. Um, I never would have understood how broken the system is if I wasn't dealing with it myself. And I honestly think that most people have no clue how broken it is and how it's putting children at risk. Um, I'm keeping my married name private as well as my ex-husband's name for my son's sake. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's not my intention to call my ex out with this call. It's my intention that hopefully someone who hears this today can make CSSD and the family court do their jobs and protect my son. Um, as I mentioned, there is a very long history here, but I'm just going to concentrate on the most recent incident and that's what's happening as a result of that right now. Okay. Um, there was an incident in mid-February when my son called early on a weekday morning from his dad's uh, for me to pick him up as things had escalated between them. Uh, this is not a rare occurrence. This time um, when I picked my son up, he told me that it involved you know, both emotional and physical abuse, and it actually left my son terrified that his father was going to come to my house and kill him. Um, he was in a big panic. He couldn't go to school. Um, he was looking at the window all day to make sure his dad wasn't coming. So this was all reported to CSSD. Um, my son ended up with bruises and was sent to the Janeway for a child protection medical. And the pediatrician concluded that the bruises were consistent with what my son had disclosed. Um, as a result of this, CSSD strongly advised me to act as a protective parent and supported me stopping access with his father. They also said that the incident was verified and that my son was considered at risk in his father's home. So that's what I did. I kept my son with me. My ex um, did eventually file for an emergency interim hearing with the family court on the basis that I was unlawfully withholding. And that hearing took place uh, this past Wednesday, April 5th. Um, in the meantime, I had reached out to the social worker, my ex's social worker, several times via email. I had sent him further disclosures that my son had made to me, one of which involved his father holding a knife to him. I had also asked if there were any updates, and I got no response. In court on Wednesday... The social worker was called to the stand, and he confirmed that the incident was verified, that risk was identified for my son in his father's home, and that they advised me to protect my son. But then he added a sentence that completely blindsided me, and that made absolutely no sense. He said that my son was now considered safe in his father's care, and they were not requiring supervision. Based on what? Pardon? Based on what? Because, I mean, if well, the incidents have been question. documented and verified, then... That is the question. Yeah. That, right? So, um, but then because of what, because of that sentence, that seemed to be the word that the judge focused on more than any other, safe. And she said that access would be resuming, um, but she needed to consider what that was going to look like and needed us to come back. So we actually go back tomorrow morning at 930 um, the social worker also confirmed that no programming has yet occurred with my ex. He, the program that he's supposed to be doing, he hasn't even been registered in yet. And it's supposed to take, it could take up to months, you know, for the programming to be completed. Um, my ex said right in court to the judge that he only does these programs because CSSD tells him that it looks good and not because he needs them. Um, so I left the court in complete shock as did my lawyer. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the question, of course, what you just asked me was, 
you know, how can a child report being hurt, have it verified by CSSD in the Janeway, then have CSSD tell you there's risk for the child in the home, then suddenly deem it safe. Without further interviewing the child, who has since made other disclosures, without any programming having yet started to address the issue, without any access with his father since, suddenly, magically, how could it be deemed safe? It's an unbelievable story. So is the child able to say, I don't want to go? Well, he he is saying that very loudly, um, but, like, he doesn't get to say that in court. Um, you know, and, I mean, that's kind of a part that I've been dealing with for so long that kind of becomes... Um, he said, she said, because, you know, I'm saying my son is here crying that he doesn't want to go. And his father is trying to say that, okay, well, what are you saying to him to make him say that? And I mean, I'm not. And if CSSD had bothered to do their job in the last seven weeks and come and talk to my child, they would see that for themselves. Um, it, it's, you know, it's a horrible situation. I, I mean, right now, unless something can happen between tomorrow and nine thirty. Tomorrow nine thirty, when we see the judge again, um, I mean, she's going to say that my son has to go back. I have no idea how physically I'm going to force him to go. Uh, you know, he's he's very much saying like these. He doesn't know anything about court, of course, but he does know about CSSD because they came and looked at his bruises. He had to go to the hospital, etc. And you know, he says, "Mom, like these are the people that are supposed to protect me. They're going to send me back to get hurt." And, you know, what do I say to that? Right? Um, so I, I left court. As soon as I left court, I called the child advocate. Um, the advocate had the exact same questions as me. How can risk be mitigated when nothing has been done? And why hasn't my son been interviewed since the incident was validated seven weeks ago and in light of new disclosures? Um, she said that CSSC has an obligation to mitigate the risk, and that has not been done. So she called, that was Wednesday afternoon, or getting towards evening when we got out of court and I called her. So Thursday morning, she spoke to the social worker's supervisor and told them her concerns. And then Thursday afternoon, she put her concerns in writing to them. I did ask for a copy of that so that hopefully I could show that to the judge, but that's not permitted. Um, the advocate is also not allowed to testify in court. That's part of their... I don't know, legislation. Um, so the child advocate, I mean, she hopes that something will happen before tomorrow morning uh, because she agrees that otherwise the judge is going to rule without the full information. Um, I actually read from CSSD's official website, one of the first sentences they have on there, it says that the Department of CSSD ensures the protection of children from abuse and neglect. And they're absolutely not doing that. I mean, ensures the protection. They're not even, they're not doing anything. Um, so I know John Abbott is the minister responsible for CSSD. I have tagged him on Facebook and on Twitter where I did make this public um, and over, you know, the weekend. Um, I have sent him a message and I have not heard anything back. CSSD really needs to act today, and, I mean, court is tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. Um, so in talking to my lawyer, like, the only thing that we can bring to the judge tomorrow that will be considered new information 
is if CSSD says, you know, we screwed up, you know, he's he's not safe, right? And so I'm kind of just want to put out a plea to if anybody has any advice or any way they know of how to help me um, with this situation that I think anybody would agree is just crazy um, to help me keep my son from getting hurt again, sent back to a situation where nothing has changed. Um, please reach out. You have my information. Um, and we'll share. Have the police ever been involved to the point of investigations or charges or anything? Because we're talking about acts of violence. Yes. Um, oh, my. This, it's Like I said, it's a long history. Um, there were charges um, against him with the mother of his other child. He has a 12-year-old child as well. Um, he got off with that. She actually didn't make a good witness because she has PTSD, uh, understandably. Um, her daughter also, um, CSSD was involved when, well, right from the start, actually, 12 years ago. But five when she was five, um, she reported to the RNC that he had hit her hard on the head in a parking lot um, because she had opened the car door and, and it struck the door of a car next to it. And, um, again, she said it happened. He said it didn't. So no charges. My son um, reported, I think he was four, when I went to pick him up one day that his father had choked him. And um, he said his father had was really mad. And my son was sat on the floor. He picked him up by the neck and sat him on the couch. So um, we reported that. They said my son didn't make a very good interviewee. And, of course, my ex denied everything, and nothing yeah. happened with that. Well, he's not and, interviewing for a job. He's interviewing, you know, as yeah. a young boy as to what he experienced. So, and I do have your contact information, and I'm happy to share it if you want me to, if someone reaches out and says they'd like yes, to speak absolutely. with you or have some yeah. advice for you. Absolutely. And I'm really sorry you're going through this because as as a parent, and I think... No, the vast majority of parents, anyway, our number one role in this is to protect our children. You know, as Absolutely. parents, I don't know if there's anything more important than that. Of course, it's all the life lessons that we should be instilling in them and some yeah. character and morals and whatnot, but to protect them is the ultimate. And I hope something changes between now and 9.30 tomorrow morning, and well, I will yeah. share your info with whoever reaches out to me. I'll give you the final thoughts, Jenny, uh, and I'm really sorry this yeah. is happening. Yes, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so basically if we go back tomorrow, and like I said, the judge really focused on the word safe and um, did say, you know, because my lawyer had said, well, our position is that access should not start until at least programming has been done with the father, and the judge interrupted her and said, no, no, access will be restarting. Um, you know, really focus on that word safe and, you know, no supervision. Um, and so tomorrow very, I could very well have my ability to keep my son safe taken away from me. And my son is, I mean, he doesn't know court is going on, but I've, I've kind of mentioned to him, well, you know, you probably will have to see your dad at some point, And he absolutely loses it. 
And I can't imagine being a man, one, to want to hurt a child, but secondly, for your son to say, I don't want to, I don't want to go with you, Dad, and for the father to take him would be unconscionable. So if anyone wants to help uh, Jenny out with some advice or you've been through similar circumstances and know something that can be done, because I don't, and I wish I did. So I'll Mm -hmm. share your information, Jenny, but if anything changes today, please reach out to me, and I would appreciate a note tomorrow. Let me know what happened. Okay, I will do that, and thank you again so much. My pleasure. You take good care of yourself. Take care. Thanks. Okay, Jenny, Bye-bye. bye-bye. Uh, let's, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Ted, you're on the air. Uh, excuse me. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. And uh, very happy Easter. I hope you had a good happy Easter, you and your family. Oh, we did. Thanks so yeah. for that. I hope uh, you did, too. Patty, I, I don't know. You might have discussed this before. But I, uh, maybe, uh, last week, uh, I was early in the morning, I uh, clicked on the sports uh, uh, score there, and I saw where Dawson scored the three goals. Right? Yeah. And I know you're on top of that. But anyway, and, uh, while I was driving down to the coffee shop, I, excuse me, I had the coffee, I said, don't eat tobacco. I, uh, I, I came in my head, I said, uh, Jeez, I said, what other Newfoundlander ever scored three goals, right? Just came my head, right? So anyway, I got, the, got them down the coffee shop, got it going good, right? And I wasn't sure, but in the back of my mind, but in case you haven't discussed this, uh, but the first Newfoundlander to score uh, the hat trick, as they called it, or three goals in the game, was Alec Faulkner. I knew that, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I figured you knew it, but yeah. uh, the great part about uh, part is this, uh, that... Uh, well, Alex scored it in his rookie season with the Toronto Maple Leafs. A lot of the boys thought it was Detroit, right? I wasn't 100% sure, right? I was going to call you that morning, but something happened because, uh, you know, I still follow the hockey pretty good, not as good as I used to, especially now that's going to run this by this morning if we got a little bit of time. Um, with the, uh, the playoffs coming up now, well, yeah, and before I get on to that, and by the way, I've noticed there, especially in the Conception Bay North area, North area among the younger players coming in, right, like young young fellas coming in with their dads or something for coffee or, or practice after hockey. There's quite, a, quite a, a lot of New Jersey fans out here right now, okay, in this area, especially in the uh, Bay Roberts years down that area, right? Just before we move on to uh, Mercer, which I really love watching him play, wasn't Faulkner's goals, though, that we're talking about with Detroit? I know that he played... No, I wouldn't leave, sir. Well, okay, it, you might be right. I don't have the numbers in front of you. But if I remember correctly, I think he only played one game in Toronto in the 61-62 season and then off to Detroit the next season. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going back a long time, and I'm going from my head, as you know, right? I, okay. I, I don't have the, uh, you know, that, the Google information, okay? But I think if you, one of the boys went on the whatever they go on the phone or Google or something, right? And they said, Ted, you're right. He scored three goals with the uh, in his rookie season with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Of course, there's one way we can always find out because uh, Alec, I think, is, yeah, he is. He's, I think he's 92 now. Time flies, right? You know? And uh, I met him once in my life. I met him when, uh, years years ago, back in the 60s, I think it was, uh, I went to a softball game, and Alec was quite a softball player as well, right? And uh, But I think if you check it out, and I hope I'm right, I'm told I'm right, but it was with the uh, 
And I know you're a, Maple, a real Maple Leaf fan, right? Three goals. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, you have the means in front of you to research that, okay? okay. And like I said, I hope I'm right. And I thought if you hadn't discussed it, it would be a good topic, right? Because it's a, well, let's say it's a Newfoundland topic, the way I look at it, right? You know, and uh, Alec is, uh, was, was certainly was, he's made his uh, great uh, years with the Seabees, right? Going back there, the great days with like with uh, George Faulkner, Alec Faulkner, Jack Faulkner, and they had a, another brother who played a couple of games there, a guy by the name of Lindy Faulkner, who was uh, nickname was the Grasshopper because of his style of skating, okay? But anyway, on the uh, fan base we're here in Conception Bay North, as you know, a lot of Leafs, and I mean dire at least, and there's uh, quite a few Montreal Canadian fans. But Dawson Mercer is having a, a you know, is a household name here right now in this area, and I'm sure across the province. I think a lot of people are going to be watching New Jersey. Uh, I think, are they playing Boston in the first round or Pittsburgh? I think it's Boston. Um... <laughs> I can't think of it here now uh, off the top of my head but whoever gets Boston I don't see anybody beating Boston in a seven game series to be honest uh, I gotta make I gotta make I gotta come back at you here now okay sure I don't think Boston is going to get past the second round I think age is going to catch up with them Possibly. I mean, you know, the playoffs, they play the games for a reason because paper doesn't count and regular season doesn't count. So we'll see what uh, happens to them. But, I mean, success so far this year is pretty unbelievable. When they score the first goal, they're like 43-1-2. and two. Yeah, yeah, you got your statistics here, but I, uh, you know. But uh, the main thing is this. This is a big question mark now okay. everybody in this area, okay? And, and, and I mean this sincerely, right? Can, I, I think this time, I think the Leafs are going to get by the first round, okay? Maybe, yeah. I really do. A lot of uh, lot of the good knowledgeable players, right? And we talked this over 6 o'clock that in the morning, you know, a few sports guys, right? Uh, goaltending seems to be the question mark when it comes to the uh, to the Maple Leafs, right? But they got a lot, they got a lot of firepower. There's no yellow. I mean, you know that, and I know it. Okay, it's a, they they got a good team. There's no question about it, right? I wish them all the best. But I'm not a Leaf fan. I was always a Detroit fan, right? Gordy Howe mainly, right? But I can assure you, it'd be some playoffs, some interest, if we could ever get Colorado, which is the team to beat still. And New Jersey, I don't know if it ever happened. Then you'd have New Hook from Colorado, and you'd have Dawson Mercer from uh, Bay Roberts. It would be a great, great series. Well, it'd be exciting for people in the province, but of course, the two teams that are have the most fans in the Newfoundland or Labrador, I imagine, are Montreal and Toronto. Who has more? Don't know. But if the Leafs made a run, there'd be a major buzz in this province. That's for sure. I don't think they have the goaltending. I don't think they have the defense. I don't think they have the grit to make much of a run. But they absolutely have firepower. That's undeniable. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I was going to call you there, there last week. It would take up too much time, but I had the. Uh, um, I don't do much of this now, like you know. I'm still active, you know what I mean. You know, you know, you know, you know which Ted you're talking to. I do okay? so. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. We all, we've done like quite a lot of quite a lot of chit chats over the years, right? But well, I won't think much on this one. But I had the, uh, I would say the privilege, I would call it, of uh, last Saturday, uh, a friend of mine. Uh, he's an auctioneer by the name of Walter Mercer. You've had a couple of conversations with him on your program, right? They were putting off the auction up to the Ascension Collegiate, 
Walter's brother was down, and and they and they do this stuff voluntarily, right? Uh, his brother Ken was down from Ontario, and then the other uh, young gentleman, who was an auctioneer but was born born in Ireland, the three of them were going up to Ascension to do, you know, Ascension Collegiate there. They, uh, I guess, they raise funds now for the school, or whatever. We know it's a good cause, right? So that afternoon. I uh, I don't at night time all want me to go down, but I didn't. I went down the afternoon, went up and looked at the uh, display on the at the Ascension College. Like I got a tour, like because I deal a bit in in collectibles and antiques and that. I I, okay. I do some, you know. So I went up and looked at everything, and uh, some of the stuff was was really impressive. There was probably only a couple of items there what you would call antique. The rest of it is stuff, you know, to raise money. But there was a an old muzzle loader there on the stand with a powder horn. I was going to put it in the silent bin on it, right? I was thinking about it. But I had just purchased a, a painting off of a local artist by the name of Wayne George. Okay. And, uh, but anyway, so, but I didn't, I had enough cash on me to put it in that silent bin. I was going to put a bid in for 400, but it went for 350. But I want to thank, uh, okay. I, want to say, I want to thank, you know, Walt and these for taking the time to even invite me up there. It was a very interesting afternoon. Appreciate the time, Sworn Ted. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome, sir. Take care. Bye. All the best. Bye bye. A uh, couple quick notes on Mercer. Uh, since he started in his first rookie season game last year, he's played in 162 straight regular season games. The Devils did not make the playoffs last year, but they are going to be in the playoffs this year. He's got 27 goals. The highest goal scoring tally he ever had, even as a junior, was 30. Last year he was minus 25. This year he's plus 22. Unbelievable stuff. Let's take a break. When we come back, it's National Dental Hygienist Week. And then we're going to talk about the current climate at Memorial University. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Nicole. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Awesome. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to all the other Nicole Kylies that I get mistaken for because I'm so grateful they all have successful careers, but um, I'm not in politics. This Nicole Kylie is a registered dental hygienist, and I also volunteer with the Newfoundland Labrador Dental Hygienist Association, and I own an independent dental hygiene clinic on Logie Bay Road called the Dental Hygiene Studio. So that's in the same building as Needs with the Liquor Store Express, a very busy part of our neighborhood. No doubt. <laughs> um, so this is National Dental Hygienist Week and also Oral Health Month. So I was kind of hoping to call in to have a little chat with you um, about National Dental Hygienist Week and also some realistic tips to help people get back on track if they've fallen behind with their oral health. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, Patty, I guess um, I would like to say that I think the general public understands the things they need to do. We've been beating the drum for a long time to brush twice a day, um, to floss, sugar is bad, visit a dental hygienist or a dentist regularly. But I think that a lot of people don't realize that those messages sometimes create some shame and overwhelm in people. Um, so I thought I'd change the messaging a little bit today and help people maybe overcome some of these feelings, some tips to overcome. Because one thing that I've realized in my own practice is that, number one, a lot of people suffer from dental anxiety. And 
for many of those, it has little or nothing to do with pain. It's the fear of being judged, the anxiety that comes along with um, shame and falling behind schedule. Um, So, and especially during the pandemic, we really saw that coming out of the pandemic that, you know, for a lot of people, even brushing was difficult. Um, So I would like to give some of my favorite tips for someone who maybe is in a place where they feel like they can't get ahead. So if you're not currently brushing, and and like when we talk to you about how our mouth affects our overall health, one of those connections is actually mental health and mental wellness. So if someone's suffering um, a a mental unwellness or an episode of unwellness in the mental health field, it can make it harder to do the simple things like brushing. So if you're not brushing currently, um, it's still a benefit to start picking up the brush and getting back at it even once a day. When it comes to flossing, floss isn't your only option. So since the inception of flossing, humans have had a difficult time grasping the habit. And it is important, but there's lots of other options out there now. So if you're someone who maybe is doing good with brushing and you want to add a little extra in to help protect your teeth and prevent gum disease, you can also use uh, little brushes, little interproximal brushes or a water pick. Um, If you're not um, with the sugar... One of the easiest tips for sugar reduction, because as we know, the sugar tax, that doesn't ultimately stop people from reaching for sugar, but to cut out sugar-sweetened beverages as a way to limit sugar and to choose water, you can still have your sweets, um, but sipping water throughout the day actually helps maintain your oral health. And the other one is, you know, we keep saying to visit a dental professional, the truth is that many people can't afford to visit a dental professional regularly. And um, there are other options. Like, I don't think that the general population understands that in Newfoundland Labrador, you can visit a hygienist outside of a regular clinic. Like, did you know that, Patty? Did you know that that dental hygienists can open up their own clinics? I had no idea. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things, like, I've had my clinic open now for um, six or seven years, And one of my biggest struggles with marketing is helping the public understand that it's an option. So it doesn't mean that you never visit a dentist. It means that you visit us separately. Um, There's hygiene hygiene clinics right across our province. I'm in Logie Bay. There's one in St. John's, Holyrood, Gander, Deer Lake. The first one was actually open in Cornerbrook. So hygienists are regulated health professionals, which means we have a college that protects the public. Um, But you can actually visit a hygienist. So one of the things we do at my clinic to help people access care is we offer payment plans. We offer consults for dental cleaning so people can understand where they're at um, and also make arrangements to come in regularly. So I guess hygienists and uh, dentists and everyone else involved with oral health would be quite pleased with the most recent move in the federal budget. And, you know, like the NDP were pushing for this for a long time. Former Member of Parliament Jack Harris actually tabled a bill to see dental care covered, just like we cover other uh, aspects of our overall health. And good oral health has a major impact on your overall health anyway. Major. It? And I think that was part of the disconnect, right? The public is like, if it's so important why can I not afford to access? Like, how is it fair that I can't afford to access care when it's so important? And a lot of the connections between our mouth and our body have to do with diabetes, heart disease, stroke, mental health. I mean, the numbers in Newfoundland are pretty striking. We're, we're winning by losing in all those categories. So the fact that we are adults, I mean, there's a 
the Children's Dental Program in Newfoundland Labrador is one of the best in the country, and it's been around for a while. So we haven't really gotten utilized the federal dental program for children. But once it rolls out for adults and seniors, I mean, that's a game changer. It's going to be people are going to be able to afford to access care for the first time in a very long time because they currently don't get any to get if you fall under like the drug plan or the assistance plan, you get $300 a year towards emergency care, which doesn't get you very far. Absolutely. So uh, happy National Dental Hygienist Week to you. Anything else you'd like to say, uh, Nicole, before we have to say goodbye? No, thank you so much for having us, or for having us, having me. <laughs> it's been great chatting. And if anybody has any questions, they can feel free to, to contact me. My, my business page is pretty uh, pretty active, the Dental Hygiene Studio. Um, but if anyone has any questions about accessing care or needs help getting pointed in the right direction, I'd love to help them. Well, I appreciate you making time for the show and the information. And if people have questions, Nicole is your woman. Perfect. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's try to get back on track. Uh, the caller that's in the queue to talk about Memorial University, Hank Tuff, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Good. Thank you. I really enjoy your show. It's a holiday today, so I'm listening to your show. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for calling. What's on your mind? I uh, just want to comment on the ongoings at Memorial University in regards to the president and the, the rising tuition. Sure. I, I find it very disturbing as a former graduate of Memorial that somebody wouldn't check into the president's qualifications before she was hired. And I find it really unusual that tuition has gone up so much. I mean, that's one of the competitive advances that Munn had when I went there. Tuition was fairly cheap compared to the rest of Canada. Yeah, and, and it still is, uh, if, we'll, if we're being fair about the, the comparatives, whether it be throughout Atlanta, Canada, or around the country. But insofar as our qualifications go, I mean, I can't speak to a chapter and verse because I really don't know, but I do know that prior to being hired at Memorial University, she was the president and vice chancellor of the University of Regina for 11 years. Hey, so, I mean, why did they fire her? I don't know if they fired her or she left. I can't remember off the top of my head, to be honest. Yeah, it doesn't play well nationally, right? I mean, it's very typical of Memorial University. I, I find the administration there is very poorly run when I went there. And um, the amount of work that you have to do to get a good degree that month is much higher than anywhere else in any other university that I've attended. And I would encourage many any parent that's looking at sending their kid to university to consider universities outside of Newfoundland and Labrador. I had one friend that went to St. Thomas over in Fredericton, and he said the amount of work that you had to do to get a, an A at St. Thomas would get you a C at MUD. So students worked very hard there. They really pushed. And the other thing I noticed when I went there, and it was a few years ago, is that but half the professors at MUD were like, you're so lucky to be here. And anywhere else I went to school, they looked at you and they said, we're really lucky to have you. It was a much better, much more positive experience. So how are you equating that, which is very interesting, with someone in the position, say, for instance, the president? Because the autonomy, especially of a tenured professor, you know, how they portray themselves and the institution and their workload or their demands is sort of up to them. So how are you putting that back into the lap of the administration? That's a separate comment from the president. I don't want to comment too much on the president because that may be subject to, lit- that may be subject to litigation. I wouldn't be surprised if she was reinstated. But I'm just saying, as a general comment on Memorial University and the administration there, they make students work much harder than anywhere else. And if you go anywhere else outside of Newfoundland, I've also had people I've known have gone to St. Mary's over in Halifax. 
much more positive experience. Had a friend did a uh, degree over in Santa X, very positive, and they really enjoyed it a lot more. So with the with the rise in tuition and and uh, and mind, it's really losing any any competitive advantage that it had to me. The other thing I wanted to talk about is whatever happened to Danny Williams' plan to create a second university in Cornerbrook. I thought at the time that was an excellent idea. This competition is always good. Um, I'm not running down Newfoundland for the sake of you know running down Newfoundland. Don't get me wrong, but uh, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement at mind. And it's important for whatever gaps or improvements that are required get done. Because yeah. if we're going to have a successful, viable, profitable, healthy future here, the success of post-secondary institutions, mon included, is going to be paramount. Uh, and I can't speak to an experience as a student of uh, more than one university, but one of my, one of my boys... Well, it is, though. He spent a couple of years at Laval in Quebec City, and the comparatives, he hasn't mentioned any difference in the requirement of workload and demand and how they mark uh, one school versus another. But, of course, that's probably a little bit of a tricky one, too, because in Quebec, he was going to university strictly in the French language as opposed to his mother tongue, even though he's a bilingual child uh, here. And he he did change his focus area for graduation as well, so maybe it'd be extremely difficult for a comparison to be offered. Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, whether or not. Just a quick quote on uh, competitiveness. I think there's probably been a bit of a problem ever since the tuition freeze was in place where we seem to have leaned on price point and tuition cost as the number one sell. Because I think if you look at the academic work done by researchers and professors at Memorial University, the amount of time they're cited in uh, other peer, or the, some of their other peers' papers is really quite impressive. And then, you know, talk about the caliber of the med school and the engineering department and some of the, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, for uh, and some of the co-ops and things that are offered there. We didn't lean enough on the academic upside of MUN we just talked about how much or how little it costs to go to MUN, which I think kind of set us up a little bit for failure, especially if there was going to be, a, whether it be a massive tuition hike or an incremental hike, which probably made a bit more sense over the years, you know, because all they did was they jack up the fees. And the students don't get a tax break on the fees, but they do on tuition. So we found ourselves at a funding decrease from the province, and kaboom, there goes the tuition as opposed to 2% or something per year, try to keep up with the cost of operating a university. But yeah. Here we are. I understand all that, but see, education is ultimately student student centric. All right, it has to be for the student. The goal there is to go to university to get a job. I've had profs at Mun tell me our job is not to train you to get a job. Our job is to train you to think critically. And when you look at somebody who's going to owe probably I don't know twenty five to forty thousand dollars in student loans to say we want to train you to think critically, or would you rather become a welder? I think you're probably better off becoming a welder. Yeah, and it was not for me to argue your your personal experience. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a welder. I graduated from one. I graduated from another university, and I do quite well. But I mean, it's just it's just some of the policies they have there. And the med school, I'm not even going to get into. I mean, I've heard such such horrible things about who gets in the med school for one. It's just unreal. Well, it's so unbelievably competitive. You know, there's only 17 med schools in the country, which is, when I saw that number, I thought, wow, that's incredibly low number of medical schools. And so there's only 80 seats that's been recently expanded. The offering for people from this province is now 65 versus 60 because we inherited the five seats that the government of New Brunswick stopped funding. So the competition is just 
unbelievable. Someone but, belonged know, to me, uh, applied to Munns Med School, and was unsuccessful, even though one of the smartest, hardest working people I know, who said, okay, well, I'll just go to law school. And here she is, a senior partner as, at a very young age. So I don't know about the competition at Munns Med School, whether or not it's working in our best interest or not. In the late 1980s, I think it was Glenn Tobin, the MHA for the Marystown area, who raised in the, in the House of Assembly about who got into med school. When I was at Munn, I had a prof in one of the departments during the social science department say you're much more likely to get into med school at Munn if your father was a doctor. And what I've noticed over the years, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably four, over 45, right? And people who've applied to med school, you are much more likely to get into med school if your parent was a doctor or if your parent was a principal or a superintendent of a school board. It would be interesting to do the correlation. People from Newfoundland whose parents were superintendents or principals of school boards or at schools, and if they got into med school, I find it's very uh, almost nepotistic. And there was one guy who's, who's, who I met who told me this himself, and his father was involved with the faculty of medicine at mine. And his father looked at him and said, now, are you going to med school or are you going to law school? All right. So it comes down to who you know. It's not what you know. And I think that it almost, that university almost needs a third-party oversight, especially with respect to admissions into med school. That might be food, that might be food for consideration because that might go to solving your, your doctor crisis because there's no greater way to solve a problem than create it. If you create a problem, then it's quite easy to solve the solution. At even the most prestigious universities in the country, and very specifically inside, you know, maybe the uh, the Ivy League schools, legacy students absolutely jump to the top of the list. If dad went to Yale and you have the marks even close to being a Yale student, you are a Yale student and you get in. So some of that legacy stuff is is real. Not to say it's fair, but it is more common yeah. than not. Uh, appreciate the time. Last thought to you before they flagged me off to the news I mean again if it was my child and I have a child she's about uh, 22 she wants to go to med school so I'm going to send her to Germany I wouldn't send her to Newfoundland I, and I also would suggest that any parent who wants to for their kid to get a good education send them outside of Newfoundland appreciate the time thank you sir take care bye 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 uh, you know both of my boys have spent some time at Munn and no real complaints coming my way. I think it's important for Memorial's reputation, whether if there's gaps and there's shortcomings and there's maintenance deficits and all the rest of it, we've got to make sure that it's all adhered to and taken care of and paid attention to because it's important to say the blatantly obvious. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to the West Coast to speak with Nelson. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Nelson, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you, Nelson? Good, sir. Good. Uh, I just want to talk to you about our roads, Patty, uh, all through the West Coast the east coast our roads are absolutely terrible i noticed that our government there uh has uh put uh, a thing on b and b's to get taxes to uh, stimulate you know i guess that business i know that it's a seasonal business my point is how do you expect people to come to newfoundland and drive on our roads when the potholes out there and the roads are in terrible shape, 
What they do to uh, the yellow line going down the center of the roadway, Patty, is they paint over the hole, the pothole. That's their solution to uh, uh, the roads. Uh, I don't see that. That's just terrible for Newfoundland. Well, one of the first comments we'll hear, and so you see, even here on the East Coast, I tell you what, the roads are deplorable just about everywhere in the province, but first thing people pick up on, and I, I tell the story all the time, is picked up some friends at the airport before we even got from the airport say down to the uh, intersection for Newfoundland Drive someone in the back seat said wow there's a lot of garbage on the road and there was it was everywhere then we made a left on the Newfoundland Drive before we got down to McDonald's he said man the roads are terrible I'm like oh man here we go Yes, sir. Uh, I do have to admit that uh, the roads are terrible. I don't understand how our provincial government or our federal government would let this happen. Uh, You know, there are machines that we have made today that could take a patch hole and lift it, clean it, and lay down a new patch, put new stuff in. Instead of doing the whole highway, if we could just get a piece at a time done, I'm sure people would save lives they'd be happy to drive on them but when people come here to newfoundland and get off a boat and expect to drive across the island and see the uh, terrible roads that we have it's a shame that our provincial and federal government lets this happen yeah the feds probably don't do a bad job of it if you look at the national parks but with the problem so this year the governor is really quite pleased with himself and they say that they're spending what they're calling an unprecedented amount of money 225 million dollars on road work in this construction season that's all fine and dandy but there's more to it than that is you know do we actually get the roads lasting the way they should with how we approach paving today in this province and i would suggest the answer is no so whether it be about the rfp being very specific about the uh, bed work the prep work done on the bed the chemical composition of the asphalt the thickness of the asphalt we're just going to get the same results we get time and time again very quickly they're pocked and rotted and potholes appear so unbelievably quick that especially this time of year right? i mean this is pothole season while we go through this spring thaw that we're enjoying. But no argument coming from me about the state of the roads. As a motorist, I see it all the time. Yes, sir, and so do I. I've been out here now, and I've got about 8 million miles under my belt running over the highway from St. John's to Florida Bass. In the last 50 years, I've been out here, and uh, I've never seen them improve. And the other day, when I was coming through the West Coast, I looked down and seen the yellow line being painted down into the pothole, up out of the pothole, and carried on. Now, I said to myself, what a waste of absolutely, you know, painting if you're not going to fix the roads. It is frustrating to see a yellow line, a fresh yellow line through a pothole. Um, Yeah, I mean, we just... Yeah, no, I've actually had a civil engineer on who's a professor at Memorial University. This person's focus area is pavement, of all things. And he says we just don't even have a modernized approach to it necessarily. So, and I don't think it's the fault of the heavy civil group and the, uh, the road work companies, because they respond to a contract that's uh, put forward, or a tender package that's put forward by the government that has the specifics and the requirements therein. I just think we attempt to get more kilometers for money spent as opposed to more long-lasting pavement per money spent because that would be i think my preference because look i'm taxpayer right i pay into that fund of money that 225 million dollars this year i think we just and and i have reason to say this is i remember 
a finance minister coming into a budget lock-in and saying that we got more kilometres paid last year for less money. Yeah, but that's not how. That's not the appropriate measure. The appropriate measure is whether or not the roads are in good shape for longer. Absolutely, Patty. I agree that this third-rated asphalt's got to go. Newfoundland is the paradise to heaven. Now, I don't understand, but when people come here, that's the response I get to. The roads are terrible. Why don't we go somewhere where the roads are better? And I've seen it, and if we could save one life on the road, I think it's worth paving the entire road. But there are solutions, and I hope that Newfoundland can find it. Newfoundland and Labrador can find it. And uh, if they do, well, they'll make this truck driver a happier man. I'm glad you made time for the show this morning, Nelson. Thank you very much. And thank you very much, too, Patty. It's great listening to you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too, Nelson. All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, Roadwork, look, you know, hopefully inside some of the new approach government has taken over the last number of years. So early tenders just make sense. It's working for the industry in particular. And yes, you got to spend money on the roads. No one denies that. But, you know, we just don't seem to be getting the value that we require. So there was a chemical composition pilot there a few years ago. I don't know exactly what came of it. And there's also the pilot project that was done with nighttime paving, which apparently, as we're told, came in at 30% extra cost to do the same amount of work, nighttime versus daylight hours. So on and on it goes. And, you know, I, I do think it has an impact not only on the locals, but guaranteed for visitors to the province. If that's one of their takeaways, that's not good. The most powerful tool in the hospitality or the tourism business is word of mouth. So, yeah, we can have a great culinary scene. And, yes, we can uh, talk about the rugged beauty of the province and all of those important facets. But if it's dirty and the roads are beat and you can't get a rental car, then that's not necessarily much of an upsell either. Anywho, let's see here. Uh, had a listener via Twitter talk about uh, admittance into med school and that one of her children uh, applied and on uh, the first try got in. Excellent. Good news. But goes on to say that there's, it's got nothing to do with who you know or who your parents are or what profession they work in or whether or not your mom or dad or a doctor that went to Munn's med school. I think it probably does, though. I mean, it doesn't mean every single circumstance is uh, based on nepotism and nothing but. But surely, if my son and your son have the exact same GPA and very similar CVs and very similar academic background, but I'm a graduate of Mons Med School and working at the Health Sciences Center and you're not, I think I probably have an upper hand. I mean, am I overstating it? I don't think so. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, today's a great day to get on the show. The topic, entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. David, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hiya. Hi. Uh, My wife and I picked up a piece of jewelry the other day, and we'd like to find a rightful owner to it. So I left the number there with uh, the gentleman I was just talking to. If they could call me, and uh, I'd like for them to get it back. Whereabouts did you find it? Uh, right in front of Manor Bakery. So right here on Freshwater Road in town? Yep. Okay, so is it a watch or a ring or a chain? or a, You it, don't have to give away all of the, the specifics because someone well, just they, calls it. call me and describe it, they're welcome to come and get us. Okay, so uh, David found a piece of jewelry. When was this, David? I'm sorry. Uh, it was Thursday. Uh, Thursday, just out in front of Mana Bakery here in the city. Great sandwich at Mana. Uh, so if that's your piece of jewelry and you know you're missing it, you call us and we'll give you David's number. Sound good? Perfect. 
Patrick, thanks very much. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. You know, I, I don't think the word is surprise. I guess I'm really pleased that, uh, you know, every so often we get those calls where I found something, we'd like to get it back to the owner, whether it be cash or credit cards or jewelry or laptops. We had a laptop call there a while ago. A student uh, called, or pardon me, emailed me in a real panic. Uh, the fact that they had either lost it or just misplaced it or they thought it maybe had been stolen when they were on campus. And lo and behold, they simply walked away from it and you know sometimes we all get a bit distracted and what have you and someone found it got it back to him had all sorts of work that was saved on the laptop uh, associated with his uh, phd work that he was doing so things like that are good stuff so if you lost a piece of jewelry and we don't know exactly what kind of jewelry it is but if you're in and around manna and you're getting a chicken breast on a pretzel then david has picked it up and maybe you can be reunited so we did speak with a fish harvester earlier on the show but the conversation wasn't necessarily about the industry but i did probe him as to whether or not he was going to go at the crab this year with the price set at two dollars and twenty cents per pound and down in his area down three case not open yet opens on friday so yet to be determined and the issue then went with, uh, you know, importation of crab cop by whether the Magdalene Islands or whatever the case would be, by harvesters from there. And so the rule is, is that yes, the processors can indeed bring in whatever product from wherever and process it in their plants. And yes, we can do the same with uh, something caught here. And as a matter of fact, the caller, and I'll leave his name out of it, but it was about shrimp there a couple of years ago when he actually steamed across Nova Scotia and solar for a better price. So the trick is, the harvesters can indeed sell to processors out of province, but you got to steam from the fishing grounds to that province, offload, and make your business transaction there. You're not allowed to land it here and then to see it trucked out to go elsewhere. So that's the ins and the outs of that. And I think that's the same thing for uh, the processors here. You can't see it trucked in from elsewhere, but you can indeed see a boat pull up, dock, have their catch inspected, weighed, paid. Uh, same thing going for us going the other way. So like last year, I think the 220 is about five bucks less than they were offered at the beginning of the crab season last year. Landed value of snow crab in this province was somewhere in the neighborhood of $771 million, if I remember correctly. So the price is obviously really quite low. And I don't know what the con- contributing factors are, whether it be a bit of a dried up market on some of the white tablecloths in the in northeastern United States, which is our prime market for that product, whether it's the implication of Russian crab in Japan and all the other things that people point to. But the market can bear what the market can bear. Now, should there be more flexibility throughout a season for one species or another? It all sounds legitimate to say that out loud. But, of course, many people, especially some of the smaller uh, individual quotas, can be taken very quickly. So even if the market is a bit more robust and can bear a bigger price, uh, for many of the uh, fish harvesters going at the crab, they've got the crab taken. So that really doesn't do much for them. Then secondly, you know... I wonder how this gets factored in, because this has got to be some part of the conversation, is do we set the total allowable catch, which has increased by 8.4% this year, do we set the tack based on what we think the market can bear, uh, based on tonnage, or is it simply all about the price? Because we don't know exactly what the number is, but if there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of the crab caught last year remaining in cold storage, and again, I don't know exactly what that number is, We've heard 30 being used quite often. 
then how do you factor that into the total allowable catch? Because it's good news that the stock seems to be in pretty good strength this year. It was only about five years ago that the stock was in terrible shape. So inside the precautionary approach, and fish officers hate to hear that, that word or that phrase. I get it. But how do we factor in the tack with what we think we can actually sell? You know, because uh, if you speak to a harvester, which we did, one particular fellow called last week, I asked him that exact question. He just wants the quota to be set uh, similar to what it has been in years past. And especially if the stock is a bit healthier, then there's no reason for the tack to go down. But I think there's a school of thought that also includes whether or not we can sell it all. Because catching it all for the sake of catching whatever the total allowable catch is, but some whatever percentage, 20, 30, not getting sold, then we've taken 20 or 30% of the stock out for kind of no reason. Because if you can't sell it, then, you know, you're just looking at the implications for that stock in years to come. So, anyway. Uh, also heard from a couple of registered nurses, and this lady, I, I'm not sure if it's the same woman who sent me a note really quite cross with me last week. I think it might be. And this is what I said about private travel agency nurses. All right, look. Is there a place for... a private agency in healthcare? Sure, okay, I can accept that. And my comment was that if you're working in the public system and you are, say you're on the payroll at Eastern Health and all the health authorities are being blended into one, we don't know exactly what that's going to mean, but so you were working at Eastern Health and then you were approached and said, you know what, here's an opportunity to work for this one particular private agency and you would be less demand on your time, get paid more money. If I'm that registered nurse, I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds about right. Work less, paid more, excellent solution to my problems. But of course, then you're working alongside someone who remains in the public system, which creates that, I would think, that bit of a personal rift and or resentment or however that's properly uh, categorized. So what I said was that if you're working in the public system, when you sign your contract, it should come with something, you know, generally referred to as a non-compete so that you can't just quit working for Eastern Health and go work for a private agency right away, you know, like a cooling off period. I think if I quit here, I can't go work anywhere else in media for I think it's 12 months. Uh, it's been a long time since I looked at that contract, since the day I signed it. So I thought that that might be a way to protect the public system. And this person was trying to make a charter argument about mobility and the, uh, the want to work where you want, for who you want, when you want. I get all that. But we are also talking about a system that uh, trained you and employed you and is stressed out and overwhelmed and is trying to find solutions beyond just the rate of pay, but try to uh, have a bit more of a work-life balance that makes things better, because if it's better for the system, it's better for me and you. And in addition to that, uh, reference to comments made, and this is not from me, these are comments coming from Yvette, uh, pardon me, Yvette Coffey from the Registered Nurses Union about this expanded scope of practice. And I think these are fair questions, is we don't know all the details yet, but some nurses, even some of them have reached out to me directly, are saying they're not much interested in this. They don't necessarily want the ability to write a prescription. They don't necessarily want to be in the flow chart for referrals to specialists or ordering diagnostic imaging or what have you. Because, for instance, on the prescription front, there's three training modules, takes about a year. So they're wondering, are they going to get paid for that? Is it going to be on the job? Is it going to be in their free time? What's the implications for the nurse practitioner or a doctor to oversee that training before they are allowed in full to write a prescription? And will they get paid more? Because if you're taking on more work, in most industries, in most businesses, regardless of what we're talking about, public or private, more work is, you know, for instance, if they put more work on my plate, I would hope it comes with 
more pay or accommodations. But those are the questions being asked. So it doesn't seem to be going over as well as the government probably thought it would with registered nurses. And I can't speak for every registered nurse. Of course not. But the one area where it seems to be uh, really well received is for the expansion offered to pharmacists in the province, which is very good news. Four different ailments have been added to their ability to write and refill prescriptions. They've extended the refill from 90 days to a full year. Makes a lot of sense. They also offered a bunch of different drugs and treatments into the universal coverage uh, as opposed to the pay-out-of-pocket model. So it seems to be working for one, but not necessarily for the other group. All right, let's see. If you're in the St. Charles metro region, the number to dial, of course, 10 digits these days, 709-273-5211. And toll-free elsewhere, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, how you doing, Mr. Daly? Doing okay. How you doing? Uh, not too bad. Uh, first time caller, long time, Mr. Welcome uh, to the uh, show. We called today about the, the roads going down to Bali Lawn Extension. It's not fit. Where's the taxpayers' money going? Like it's, it's, it's atrocious. And I'm fed up with it. I'm after beating up two rooms every brand new care. Like what, what are these people doing with our taxpayers' money? <laughs> Always a fair question. Um, so when's the last time that particular piece of road had any attention or any more blacktop? Jesus, longer than last week. Like I know it's been a couple of years. Is it on the list for this year? Do you happen to know? On the list? Oh, geez. I'm paying taxes and I'm going to have to beat up a couple of rooms on my brand new car. Where's all the taxpayers' money going? For- well, I mean, I don't know if I can answer that question directly, but I know they're planning on spending a ton of cash on the roads this year. I hope so. I'm sick of smoking red butt cigarettes. Shoveling me drunk. So I'm sick of the weather. I'm, I'm waiting for it to warm up a little bit. I don't mind the winter, but it's at this time of year where it starts to drag on. I mean, here we are, 10th of April. I'm looking out the window, and I'm seeing the snow flying this morning. So I'm kind of looking forward to it warming up a little bit, too. Yes, myself. I'm sorry looking out the window myself. Yeah, it's a lot of melt in my neighborhood, though, uh, when compared to my mother's neighborhood, where she's in a bit of a snow belt in the city. But we're seeing some green grass kicking around on my front lawn. That's an encouraging sign. But the person who's next in the queue, I'm sure, wishes there was a bit more snow for a little bit longer because we're going to talk about Marble Mountain. But, yeah, the road work, I'll have a look at the list. I usually... In the morning, try to pull up some of those things. I have it in front of me for the eventual calls as to whether or not the Baleen Road extension is fit to drive or whether or not it's planning to be paved this year. I do know one thing. The roads inside of Baleen proper. I wouldn't take a four-wheeler down the road. You wouldn't? Okay. Yeah, I don't know if it's on the list or not, but I know the roads in Baleen are pretty tricky, too, even just how steep they are, let alone the quality of the yeah, asphalt. You better have good brakes, so you can't. Yeah, it's... It's, like it's hard to be getting back forth to work every morning. We're going to change the tire every goddamn day. Yeah, not good. And, you know, it's unsafe as much as it beats up the tires and the rims and the suspension of our vehicles. Fair enough. Anything else you want to say? No, I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. All, all the best. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, Raul Ruck, sometimes we're, you know, you hear an awful lot about it, and other times it kind of goes by the wayside. But I don't imagine there's a single nook or cranny, whether it be in Labrador and or on the island, where people don't think, you know, the roads could use a bit of TLC where I live and drive. Let's go to line number three, second more to the marketing manager out at Marble Mountain. That's Dustin Parsons. Dustin, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. How about you? Yeah, pretty good. It's a beautiful day over here on the West Coast. And you've had a good season. We've had a great season. Yeah, we've been super fortunate. Uh, the snow's been good, and once once things got rolling, they, they've really been rolling well. And it uh, looks like we're going to finish up with like 80 days, 80, 80 ski days in the season, which I think is going to be the longest ski season in Atlantic Canada. Which is awesome. And did Marble ever need it? Between some mechanical issues and some weather and lack of snow over the last few years, it's been a real struggle. So I'm really pleased to hear you had a good year. And I mean, Marble's a fun hill. For people who have skied in other parts of say of eastern Canada because it's really hard to compare a marble or any ski hill in Atlantic Canada to the Canadian Rockies but it's as good as any hill in the east yeah well you know there's been this saying around marble since like the 90s since uh, or even earlier actually when Nancy Green came here that marble is the best skiing east of the Rockies and obviously there's some bigger hills between us and the Rockies and stuff but I, over the last few years working at marble I've come to realize what that means what that expression means and by so many measurements marble actually is the best riding from the all the different types of terrain that are there from great beginner stuff to like as expert as it gets and uh, a lodge facility that I didn't even realize how unique this was in Canada that you know most ski hills don't have a facility like we have here and it was because of the Canada Games of course that they put this in but we're all really lucky to have this here in Steadybrook. Absolutely right I mean we love it out at Marble and you know compared to some other hills like people will talk about the Tremblants of the world and whatnot and yeah it's a bigger hill and yeah it's got a lot to offer but the snow is the problem. I mean, you can hear the skis chattering on that icy old snow all the time around, Mar- around uh, Tromblot, for the most part. Now they do get some powder days. And one of my buddies was out skiing your hill not that long ago and had to go back in and rent some powder skis because their old p- parabolics weren't cutting it. So that's always a good thing. <laughs> Well, and the other big thing, too, like we just had this uh, group of journalists here, these 100 journalists who write about winter sports from all over the world, like literally every corner. So they just came here. Most of them had never been to Newfoundland or even Canada before. So it was so interesting to get their take on our hill and why it's different. And the biggest thing was for them, they felt like they were on a private mountain. I mean, the lack of lineups and, uh, you know, we have so much capacity here and our lift is so fast that it's just like you're just going going so they say that you know at marble they could ski more in a day than even in the rockies like in terms of how many like miles you can get under your feet kind of thing because you spend no time waiting in line the lift is fast and you can just lap the mountain endlessly yeah well, lift lines are a very very real thing in some of the most popular hills with tons of lifts but tons of skiers and then even if when you have europeans come over if anyone's ever skied in europe it's a real traffic jam. Not only long line, uh, long lift line lineups, but man, it is thick on the slopes with the number of skiers and how much space you actually have to cut out a few uh, turns because it can be pretty congested. All right, so you had a good season, but of course, going into your second go around for an annual year round offering at Marble, which is going to be important for the long term viability of the hill. So we just reflected on the winter. What's in the offing or in store for people to be at Marble over the summer summer months so they can enjoy it and we can keep the revenue flowing? 
Yeah, well, you know, we've chatted before about how last summer we kind of took a crack at that and we created a restaurant concept that could be open all year round there that would sort of serve as like one consistent thing that's always open all year. And so we built out around that and we created some mountain biking, like laid the groundwork for mountain biking. We've still got a long way to go, but we cut our first trail. Uh, we built some features around that people can ride around the base area. And so we're going to expand on that. We're hosting a big uh, mountain bike enduro race uh, in August again. Um, so people can expect that our villa, our hotel is going to be open all year. We're hoping to cater to anyone who's traveling through the area, uh, for people who are fishing the Humber, people who are passing by to sort of use us as a base camp. Of course, the zip line will be going all year and we're going to continue with our sort of concert and festival events throughout the summer. We've got some big family events planned in August and we're also going to be putting off a big concert at Marble uh, with the Jigs and Wheels Festival happening in August. So, you know, I think people can expect to see that continuation. And then separately from that, um, the Lightning Express, we do expect, will run this summer for sightseeing tours. Um, and ideally, people will be able to get off on the top and have an experience up there. And that's something we're trying to crack open for the cruise ship opportunity. Uh, Cornerbrook's getting a ton of cruise ships this summer and presumably next. And so we want to create a new experience, a new excursion where people can ride up our chairlift, which is like Western Newfoundland's amusement park, and uh, you know get to the top of the mountain, see the Bay of Islands, probably see their ship, uh, and have a little experience up there. So, and with that, we hope to be able to bring mountain bikes as well to the top with the chair. It sounds great to me because, you know, once again, you go out to the Rockies, the, the gondolas are enormously popular for every reason you can imagine. And yes, Cornerbrook is almost on par now with St. John's for a cruise ship activity. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 plus, I think, expected in Cornerbrook this year. Some 38,000 potential passengers. I'm just trying to recall these off the top of my head. So, yeah, you got it. yeah huge opportunities available. And there's going to be several occasions where there's more than one ship in town. So, Big season coming for the folks out in the West Coast, and that's good news for all. Dustin, good to have you on the show. Congratulations on a great winter, and have a great spring and summer. Yes, Betty, I appreciate it. And if I could just toss something out, we made a little bit of a game-time decision here like this morning, and so I, I can't not seize this opportunity with you and your audience. Um, for the rest of this week, and so essentially for the rest of our season, Marble will close on April 16th as our last day, which will be a big party. But for the rest of the ski season, uh, all day lift passes are 50% off. So it's a great time for people to come out and try it out. And if you're a season pass holder listening to this, every day of this week you can bring a friend with you for free. So this is a great week for people to just, if they've never been out, to come give it a shot. It's the cheapest it's going to be, and uh, we hope to see you down there. And with Easter week, there's going to be some potential uh, children and their parents who might take you up on it. That's a pretty good one, 50% off, and uh, bring a friend if you're a season holder, a season ticket holder, or season pass holder. Uh, good to have you on, Dustin. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Patty. Talk soon. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Here we go. Good season at Marble. And, of course, Marble on that list. That's long been considered. You know, many people get frustrated with the fact that there's about a million-dollar supplement. Goes to Marble Mountain and its operations from the provincial government. I do think if you took Marble away from that area in the West Coast, it would have a pretty damning impact on the local economy. But, you know, we know that the province is trying to shed their relationship with Marble Mountain. And they've gone back to the market a couple of times. There's only been, I think, three proposals that were ever put forward. Do any of them come with a we don't need a subsidy? I'm not so sure because none of them have been accepted. 
So within that list of entities or assets that the government has, that different reports have advised divesting from, so I'll add to once again, I think I might actually find myself in the minority here, but being more curious about what the government is going to do with some of these things, whether it be itemized in the Green Report, the Premier's Economic Recovery Team Report, of course chaired by uh, Moya Green, and or the yet-to-be-seen by the public Rothschild Report. So it's all pretty extensive stuff. The one that gets all the pushback, of course, is the NLC. They returned over $200 million to the province again this year. So that's big numbers. Even if you sell the NLC off in part or in full, there's still an excise tax that's collected. So it's not like we do away with all the revenue stream. We've never seen a real cost-benefit analysis of selling or keeping the NLC. But anyway, that's one. And then it's the oil asset one that I think is really, really curious. Because we have an ownership stake offshore, the province continues to lean on uh, in and around, they want 10% of the uh, production facilities. So what's that actual value? And, you know, do you jeopardize long-term consistent revenue stream for some cash on the barrelhead, given the bit of a predicament we find ourselves in. You know, so the deficit is what the government will say only $160 million this year. Still the required borrowing of $1.5 billion. Net debt was forecasted to be about 17.1. It's coming in at 16.2. So there's still a lot of servicing of debt and debt to be paid, which I guess includes the concept of the futures fund, right? So that money very likely, unless there's extenuating circumstances or exceptional needs where they'll withdraw some of those funds, when bonds come due, future fund money will be there to pay. So there's been two contributions to it, one of $157 million, one of $127 million in this most recent budget. So it's always interesting to have a future fund when we have that borrowing requirement and that level of debt. Anyway, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, a chance to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Edward, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Doing okay, Edward. How how about you? I'm not doing too bad. Um, I just want to throw something out here now. Um, Some of your listeners and maybe even yourself probably going to think that I'm I'm, uh, lost touch with reality and and maybe gone crazy. But I assure you I've not, and I'll try to explain. The name of our province is Newfoundland and Labrador. I got no issues with that. Labrador is just as big a part uh, uh, in all ways as as the island of Newfoundland. My problem comes with the word Newfoundland. We pronounce the word Newfoundland. And no matter where you go or who comes to this province from the mainland or from Europe or from wherever, everybody, or I won't say everybody, but I'd say the vast, vast majority of people have a problem trying to pronounce the word Newfoundland simply because they try to pronounce it the way it's spelled. It's not their fault that we, we've we uh, bastardized the English language and don't pronounce our words properly, but we get irritated and we get upset because 
sports broadcasters can't say the word Newfoundland because they're trying to pronounce it the way it's spelled. So I'm uh, throwing an idea out for the government and anybody else who'd like to comment on it that we take the O out of the found part of Newfoundland and F-U-N-D, Newfoundland. That's the way we pronounce it. But everybody, they don't know which way to try to pronounce the word, and it's our fault. Well, we I mean, just a couple of things. Local, local accents and local uh, dialect and local pronunciation is not unique to this province. And Newfoundland is not hard to say. Newfoundland, understand. I don't get upset when people mispronounce it because it's usually very easily rectified. Uh, but the, uh, again, local dialect is rules the roost in just about the entire world. I mean, and even look at some other place names here in this province where if you're reading it uh, as it is written, like Bay d'Espoir, as opposed to Bay d'Espoir, then we do it to a lot of local words, but I don't think that's unique to this province all the same. No, I, I'm not saying that it is unique to the province, but I'm saying that... Uh, that people in general, people who don't gr- don't live here, haven't don't grow, didn't grow up here, and are not familiar with the way we pronounce the word, uh, they have a tremendous amount. They don't know whether to put the emphasis on the land or the sound. And uh, like uh, this came to my mind a little while ago because I was and I met a gentleman from uh, South Carolina and uh, he was a very good gentleman and he, we got talking, he asked me where I was from and I told him and uh, he, he, he knew where it was and he started saying Newfoundland, which is what most people do. And uh, I explained to him, I said, uh, you're right, you're pronouncing the word properly, in my opinion. It's just that we don't pronounce it that way. We just leave the O out. So uh, I think we could uh, save, it's not something earth-shattering or as important as healthcare or education, but I just think that we could correct this little uh, little uh, bit of an issue if we just simply spelled it the way we pronounce it. Just, uh, just a comment for uh, <laughs> maybe somebody will call in and uh, tell you that guy is nuts. Well, someone just emailed saying exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. Not the least. At least. Edward, I appreciate the time. Let me assure you, I'm not nuts, but I I, uh, I appreciate uh, the airtime. Thank you. Okay, all the best, Edward. All right, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I know some people get really quite irritated when the name of the province is mispronounced. Maybe I just got so much that does irritate me that I don't add that one to the list. I don't mind correcting someone if they, what we call mispronouncing the uh, province's name. You know, the other one I hear people throw out, just, you know, fodder for thought, is how much different would the province be? Because you can't change it now. But if the capital city was on the West Coast, say, for instance, it was Cornerbrook versus the capital city here on this sometimes godforsaken peninsula, on the Avalon Peninsula in St. John's, would it be a different place? I think it probably would. 
and probably different for the for the better. But anyway, the uh, way people pronounce it. Fair enough. I do think what does get me more than the mispronunciation is when you get left out of the conversation, period. When coast to coast to coast is Victoria to Halifax. That's the one I think. And it really does say more about the person who's done that versus us. I mean, because that's their lack of understanding of uh, the actual scope and the size and the geography of the country versus, you know, the fact that we are relevant or not. And I guess that uh, depends on who you're asking. But that's the one that gets me. I mean, they even do it from politicians. There was a flyer or a brochure or whatever they call it coming out from a politician uh, not that many years ago. And it said that exact thing for Victoria to Halifax. And I'm like, Victoria to Halifax? My God, you're a parliamentarian. What's wrong with you? Anyway, last check in on the Twitter feed. We're a VOCM open line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.